Hello once again, everybody, and thank you for joining me in the Better's Box. This is BangTheBook.com's MLB betting podcast for Monday, July 27th. I am your host, Adam Burke. This and every edition of the Better's Box presented by our friends over at DSI Sportsbook. BTB and the number 200 is that promo code. 100% deposit match bonus for the Sportsbook. 100% deposit match bonus for the live casino at BetDSI. It's only a game until you bet it. Daily picks and tips piece going on every day over at bangthebook.com for however long this Major League Baseball season goes. Still covering golf, UFC, and NASCAR over there. We'll be doing some NHL series preview stuff for you over the next couple of days as well. And we'll have some NBA coverage as they get back underway on Thursday with the start of the regular season for the return. Eight games there, and then the playoffs will start after that. So we'll have coverage of all that stuff for you over at bangthebook.com. And of course, you know, today's news in Major League Baseball, not a great look for our hopes for a college football season or possibly the NFL. We'll see if the NFL in a short-term, you know, very thrown-together plan can put together bubbles or something like that. Because it seems like, judging by the fact that the NHL had no positive cases with its most recent round of testing, that Maybe bubbles work, maybe not being in a bubble as we're seeing with Major League Baseball. Maybe that doesn't work. So we'll see what the NFL is able to put together. But obviously today's news, not great for college football. We'll still cover it if it looks like it's going to happen. Uh, But for now, I'll obviously be putting college football on the back burner for a little bit. It is Monday, so we'll do the Monday mailbag here to start things off. Then I'll go beyond the box score. Then we'll take a look down the lines, recap some line moves that we've seen over the first four days of the MLB season. I'll give you a pick for Monday night and then a handful of series to discuss for the week ahead, assuming this whole thing uh, doesn't get postponed, shut down, whatever you want to call it here. And as of right now, it does look like they're going to try to play all of the series that haven't been impacted uh, by the major breakout here uh, with the Miami Marlins. But I got a couple of Monday mailbag questions for you here. We'll start with one from Matt via email. Matt says, I'm starting to keep track of my CLV this baseball season. CLV, of course, stands for closing line value, which is the difference between where you bet the game and what the closing number wound up being. Matt asks, do you know if there's a site where you can find closing lines for different offshore books? The first thing I would say here is that SBR's odds page is probably the best that's out there for this. They do have the largest number of books available. You get the very easy-to-find line histories as well. So I do think SPR's odds page is probably the best if you're looking to calculate your closing line value out there. And, of course, also, too, see what the different books are offering out there in the offshore marketplace. Then Matt also asks, for totals, if the line moves half a run or a run, how would you calculate that? So for totals, it is a little bit tough to do. You know, it is something that a lot of people probably do have a question with. In a lot of instances, the books will go up to about minus 125 or minus 130 on the juice before they just go ahead and bump up half a run. So, you know, the question sort of being here, what's the difference of, you know, eight over minus 125 against eight and a half under minus 125, you know, stuff like that. The best thing I would say, again, a good resource over at SPR's odds page is take a look at their half-point calculator. They've got a half-point calculator telling you what you know a half-point is worth in 
Major League Baseball, the NBA, the NFL, college basketball, stuff like that. So that's a good place to look and see. Typically, generally speaking, you're looking at about a 20 to 30 cent difference, but it is going to vary based on the total. You know, when you talk about a move from seven and a half to eight, that's probably a little bit more significant than nine and a half to 10 or something like that, at least in terms of calculating your closing line value. So that half point calculator over there uh, at SBR, a very, very good tool for you to use. Second question here, and this one comes via Twitter this morning from at Contrarian Sport. Jeff, appreciate the question. And Jeff's been a longtime listener of the show here, so I certainly appreciate that as well. Says, would love to hear your thoughts on the story regarding the Marlins and players testing positive for the virus and what the implications might be for baseball going forward on one of your shows this week. And let's go ahead and and start with this point, I guess. Positive tests were expected. This was part of MLB's return to play plan. Now, mass outbreaks for one team, that's a little bit of a different story here. Now, I will say, look, I mean, just based on what's happened with this virus, based on how contagious this thing is, a mass outbreak on one team should have been expected too. You know, these guys are in close quarters, close proximity, highly contagious virus. You do the best you can to, you know, try and mitigate your chances of getting it. But, you know what, things are going to happen. Masks are not foolproof. Obviously, hand sanitizers and, you know, deep cleanings of rooms and stuff like that, that's not foolproof either. These guys are out there traveling, you know, going to airports and all sorts of other different things, hotels. Nothing is foolproof. So Major League Baseball should have not only expected positive tests, but also expected the possibility of teams having kind of a larger scale outbreak. So I have to think that there are contingency plans out there for this type of scenario. And again, that's why you saw the taxi squads and the 60-man player pools and all that, you know, just in the event that you do have a handful of guys that wind up getting it. The Marlins, of course, now have a large percentage of their team, more than 30%, or more than a third, I should say, of their roster, now allegedly testing positive uh, for COVID-19. So MLB had to know that this was possible. I think what you have to look at now is how they handle this. So far to this point, it looks like they're not going to shut it down. Obviously, it's a very fluid situation, and I am recording the betters box a little bit later here today because uh, you know the the article was a little bit delayed this morning, and you know just trying to kind of keep up on the latest and and all that type of thing. But now it's about how you handle it. It's about the contact uh, testing or the contact tracing, I should say, and what happened. Trying to pinpoint exactly how this outbreak kind of started here and that's obviously kind of difficult you know I mean these players are all around each other all the time so you may not be able to find quote-unquote your patient zero uh, in this whole thing there was a big thing at the outset as players returned from the Dominican Republic MLB chartered them over apparently and I remember reading this and I don't remember the exact source and if this winds up being wrong I do apologize uh, for not fact-checking it here with everything going on today but I do recall that The Dominican players came over, they weren't tested before they got on the plane and came to the U.S., but they were tested after once they got into the summer camps and all that type of thing. And that's why we saw a lot of those Dominican players noticeably absent 
from the early workouts and the early part of summer camp and stuff like that. So not blaming those Dominican players by any means, but just saying that there, and as we know, I mean, there have been positive tests so far. This has been embedded already. So maybe this is just a case where one guy did have it, kind of shared it with a couple of teammates, and now we're kind of seeing, you know, what happens here as testing sort of catches up, you know, with some of the delays and the things like that that they've had. So that's the big question here is how does Major League Baseball handle this to the point where they can either prevent it or at least kind of minimize the scope of it if these future situations pop up? Now, I do think there's a fair question to ask here in terms of what if this wasn't the Marlins? You know, Florida and Miami-Dade County have obviously had significant outbreaks for a long period of time here. What if this wasn't the Marlins? What if this was the Cubs or the Yankees? Or, you know, now we're seeing the Reds who are maybe kind of under the microscope a little bit with Matt Davidson testing positive. Mike Moustakis, Nick Senzel wind up sitting out on Sunday. The Braves, both of their catchers have it. But, of course, the Braves played against the Marlins in exhibition last week. So you kind of wonder here, what if this was a higher-profile team, a team expected to be a contender, you know, something like that? Would Major League Baseball handle this differently if it was a bigger, larger brand with a lot more pull? I mean, we don't really know the answer to that. Hopefully, we don't end up finding out the answer to that. But also from a Major League Baseball standpoint here, you know, and, and it's coming out here that you know the Marlins knew that this was going on. They kind of went around the team and asked if they still wanted to play, and the answer was yes. And, you know, we could debate the merits of that decision. I mean, I don't fault players for wanting to go out there and play. I mean, it's probably not the right course of action in terms of deciding if a game should go on or not. That should be, you know, up to team officials and, and Major League Baseball leadership. But, you know, the, the players want to play, and, and the players are going to play for as long as they can. If they didn't want to play, they would have opted out. So, you know, you can't really leave this up to the players if you're going to have these sorts of situations. Now, you're also getting a little bit more of a vocal minority here that's kind of coming out. You saw David Price, who has already opted out of the season. He was kind of, um, you know, opinionated on Twitter about the whole thing. Are there going to be forfeits now? You know, if you wind up with an outbreak on your team, you just lose those games. Because if that's the case, that's not going to sit well with the players. Will there be solidarity among the players and the players union? I don't know. You know, I don't know what the impacts are of this as we go forward. I do think that if it was going to happen, it's a good thing that it happens early on in the process because we're not into, you know, playoff chase mode or anything like that at this point in time where then you've got some really, really difficult decisions to make of, you know, you've played half of this thing already. Do you kind of try to push through it? You know, stuff like that. I don't think shutting down for a a certain period of time is an option because these pitchers are already ramped up for the season. They were getting ramped up for the start in March. They had to stop with that. They're already ramped up now. They're not going to ramp up again. They're not going to take two weeks off and try to start this thing over again, the pitchers and the players union won't agree to that. So Major League Baseball's plan, at least for right now, would seem to be to push through. And I think that was the plan from the outset if you had one team that kind of fell into this mass outbreak status. Now the Phillies, of course, who the Marlins just played, they're kind of wondering, they're kind of concerned. They've got some testing going on. 
I mentioned the Reds already. The Braves had a couple positive tests. Plus, of course, you had Freddie Freeman early on. Those are the bigger questions to me now. If this is isolated within the Marlins family, that's one thing. If this is something that impacts multiple teams or multiple teams have simultaneous outbreaks, the players' trust in the system is going to be gone. You're going to have to shut this thing down. There is a big owners meeting, I believe, going on right now as I'm recording this around 1.30 Eastern time. So we'll see what happens with that. But again, like everything else, it's it's very touch and go. And, and like I said, you know, this doesn't really give me a uh, a strong vote of confidence here for college football, uh, college basketball, maybe even in question too. And of course, the NFL probably needs to figure out some sort of bubble situation. But from a betting standpoint here, I mean, look, we've already seen the impact of the virus. We've seen scratches. You know, we saw a big line move when Juan Soto was ruled out of the lineup for the Nationals for Thursday's opening day game. We've already seen the house rules change in a lot of places with, you know, action based on the game being played, not based on listed pitchers or anything like that. Lots of unknowns, you know, and and I think that's something that's going to be pretty interesting here. The pent-up demand to bet on sports has been there. I mean, we've seen very strong handles out there for betting on Major League Baseball. But when the NBA starts on Thursday and the NHL starts on Saturday, are people going to shift their focus away from baseball? Because there are a lot more unknowns with baseball right now, so predicated on starting pitchers and, and things of that sort, a very strong modeling crowd to where when a player's out of the lineup, that's going to throw everything out of whack. I have already seen some smart people that I respect say they're not even betting baseball this year. Guys that have had success with it saying, you know, look, I'm going to focus on the NBA or I'm going to focus on the NHL or keep my focus on golf or whatever else. There's more certainty in the bubbles. And we're seeing that, you know, with the positive test numbers and then obviously this whole situation playing out. So from a betting standpoint, I mean, this has already been a difficult and challenging season because you get, you know, these uh, last-minute pitching changes. You've gotten openers. We saw Piggy Pack yesterday with Blake Snell and Trevor Richards. We're seeing a lot of different things that we're not quite accustomed to with Major League Baseball, and they're having an impact on the odds. They're having an impact on the outcomes of the games. So I think Major League Baseball's betting handle will probably go down and – you know, I mean, look, I, I, I can understand why, you know, I mean, betting, winning while betting is hard enough when you don't have all of this uncertainty, all of this gray area, all of these different high variance things you have to try to handicap. So I think Major League Baseball is very popular right now from a betting standpoint, and maybe it continues. But with all of these unknowns, I mean, it's a challenge to bet on this thing. And I do wonder once other options are available to some of the sharper people out there that, excuse me, by and large drive the market, do they go somewhere else? You know, that that's a possibility. So again, I mean, everything is so touch and go. I think if you can help it, try to wait as close to game time as you can to lock in your plays. Now, obviously, you, know, you want to try to get out there in front of line moves, and, and that's very important. And I'll talk about ways that you can expect line moves when I get to the down the line segment here, but you know, it's just an extra degree of added risk. You know, I, I write the article every morning and I'm locking in plays in the morning and things have changed, you know, 15 minutes later, a half hour later, a couple hours later. It's a difficult thing. You know, it's it's sort of up to your risk tolerance. You know, are you willing to 
put a bet out there, again, knowing that if your starting pitcher gets scratched, that bet is still action. Are you willing to put that out there 1, 2 o'clock in the afternoon as opposed to getting a worse price at 6.30 or 6.45? You know, that's that's kind of up to you. I mean, that's that's part of the challenge here for this baseball betting season, and, and I don't really think that there's a clear-cut answer at this point in time. So, Matt, Jeff, appreciate the questions, guys. Thank you so much for that. Again, at Skating Tripods or skatingtripods at gmail.com to get uh, your questions submitted here for the Monday Mailbag. Like I said, getting a very, very late start on everything here, so I'm going to try to roll through uh, the Beyond the Box score segment relatively quickly here, if I can. Hitters are off to a pretty ugly start thus far. 231 average, 314 on base, 392 slugging percentage. And the interesting thing about that is strikeout rate is down a little bit from where it was for the full season last year. Now, it's only down a tenth of a percentage point from 23% to 22.9%. But we've seen, I believe it's five, six, seven years in a row, whatever it is, we've seen new all-time highs in strikeout percentage. So the fact that it's down a little bit here so far is pretty interesting to me, along with the fact that walk rates are up. 9.4% walk rate right now across Major League Baseball. Last year for the full season, is about 85 8.6% in that range. So what we're seeing here is that hitters are not making a whole lot of quality contact, judging by the sub-400 slugging percentage and the 230 average. We're also seeing that pitchers are not quite as sharp. While hitters are still you know, working on their timing a little bit, pitchers are getting away with some things. And I saw, in a lot of the games I watched, I saw a lot of hittable pitches getting fouled back that in a week or two, you know, probably get driven somewhere pretty hard. But the pitchers still aren't quite as sharp. The hitters are still dealing with their timing. So for right now, that's kind of what we see. We're seeing walk rates up, but we're not really seeing the power production that we would expect to see or the contact authority. So again, that's something I think probably would change as we go forward, but how quickly that changes, I'm not entirely sure. 46, 40, and yeah, 46, 40, and four to the under here so far, according to the killersports.com database. And again, that uses the closing numbers from five dimes to calculate everything there. I talked a lot in the lead up to the season and had some questions last week on the Monday Mailbag about big favorites. Minus 180 and higher favorites are just 9 and 11 here to start the season. Thursday and Friday were all about the favorite money. Saturday and Sunday, all about the underdog money. I don't know if that's going to continue to be the case. But for now, big favorites have not been a great bet to start off the season. And who knows if they will be here in this 60-game format. Finally, the first time since 1954 that we have not had a 3-0 team after three games. I think I saw the first time since 1961 that we haven't had an 0-3 team. So everybody with a loss already here in the early going for this season. The Twins took two out of three from the White Sox. And, you know, I started talking about this a little bit last week that a lot of people were talking about the Indians and their pitching staff. And for good reason. I mean, the starting staff has been absolutely dominant for the Indians so far. But a lot of people were also talking about the White Sox, talking about that power potential, the power production, all that type of thing. Nobody was really talking about the Minnesota Twins, who were still the favorites to win this division, still had the highest season win total of any of the teams in this division. 
and they scored 27 runs off of Chicago pitching in this series. They take two of three, outscore the White Sox 27 to 17. And the White Sox scored 10 of those 17 runs in the middle game, largely off of the Minnesota pen. So, you know, Chicago got to Jose Barrios early in the game on Friday, didn't do anything after that, had the outburst on Saturday, nothing on Sunday off of Kenta Maeda. Lucas Giolito wasn't very good for the White Sox in that opener, struggled early in the game. And this is a big thing about Giolito. You know, I talked about him as a Cy Young candidate at 16 to 1, thinking that if the White Sox reach these heights, Giolito is going to be a big part of it. He's going to have to be very, very good as the front man of this rotation. But as I also mentioned in my write-up for Friday's game, you know, Giolito was not good in his first few starts last year, very good for the next 11 starts, and then not great for the 17 starts after that. So Giolito is a guy that really ran his season-long numbers in a short burst. And for the most part, he struggled with good lineups throughout the year, and he struggled with the Twins lineup here to start 2020. Now, I do think Giolito will continue to be dominant against bad teams, and the Indians did not hit him at all last year. That's who his next start will come against on Wednesday. But that's the thing for the White Sox here, is that, you know, Giolito wasn't great. Uh, Ronaldo Lopez didn't get out of the first inning. Gio Gonzalez was the bulk man after Lopez got run from the game. He wasn't very good. Dallas Keuchel was good, but the White Sox also played from in front in that one for the most part. Now you get Dylan Cease and you get Carlos Rodon in the next two games. Those are the big question marks here for the White Sox. The pitching staff, the rotation, and the bullpen. You know, both teams in this series hit seven home runs. But the White Sox, four for 23 with a runner in scoring position. This is big too. They have to give that pitching staff a pretty big margin for error. They will hit for power, but what do they do otherwise? The Twins not generally thought of as a high strikeout pitching staff. They got a lot better in that department last year. 29 strikeouts in the three games of this series for the White Sox. So the White Sox, yeah, they've got a ceiling. They've got potential with all those power hitters. They also have a floor that might be lower than people realize. And maybe this series kind of highlighted a couple of their more notable shortcomings. How about the Baltimore Orioles? The first place, excuse me. Baltimore Orioles, they took two out of three from the Boston Red Sox over the weekend. Uh, Now they have their game postponed, both of their games postponed against the Marlins here on Monday and Tuesday. But what I really want to focus on here is the Red Sox. You know, Nate Uvalde was good in the opener, but after that, Martin Perez was not good. Ryan Weber was not good. Eduardo Rodriguez is sidelined with a COVID-related heart issue. I would presume there's a good chance that he just outright opts out of the season now because you've got to wait for this to heal then he's also had the knee issues and all that I wouldn't be shocked if Eduardo Rodriguez doesn't throw a pitch this season for the Red Sox how invested are the Boston Red Sox you know they were already rattled in the lead-up to the season with Alex Cora uh, having to step aside from his role in the sign-stealing schemes Chris Sale has Tommy John Eduardo Rodriguez is hurt Mookie Betts and David Price both traded. You know, it looks like there's kind of a, for lack of a better term, changing of the guard here with Boston. You know, ownership crying poor over the offseason. That was a pretty interesting development there. I just wonder, 
know, they're already behind the Yankees. They're behind the Rays. The Jays are charging fast. I just wonder how engaged this Boston Red Sox team is here as we go forward. And I don't think it's a very high level of engagement. I think there's a very good chance that the Red Sox are a long-term fade for this season. I, you know, look, again, they've got a high floor because their offense is pretty good. This pitching staff is bad. It's just really bad. And I, I just, I wonder how invested this team is. You know, I mean, again, it's just one series and, and maybe the Orioles, you know, kind of played the blind squirrel theory role a little bit. But I just, I don't feel like Boston is just going to be all in with this season. I, I just don't see that being the case. So if you've got the opportunity to fade this Red Sox team, and I'm taking that opportunity here on Monday, I think there are some good chances to do that. The Colorado Rockies took two out of three from the Texas Rangers. Very good series win for Colorado, staring down the barrel of Lance Lynn, Mike Miner, and Corey Kluber. Corey Kluber leaving after only 18 pitches yesterday with a shoulder issue. That's a big problem for the Rangers because their bullpen's not great. They needed their big three in the rotation to carry them. Now we don't know what the story is with Kluber. But the big story coming out of this series is just a complete lack of offense. You know, these are two teams that have some pretty decent offensive pieces. 13 runs in three games of this series. The Rangers scored two runs or fewer in all three of the games. Only three home runs hit in this series. All three in the final game. Two of them from Trevor Story. And Globe Life Field here, among the ballparks that were played in over the weekend, was fourth in average fly ball distance. So guys were hitting fly balls. They just weren't really carrying. And this is an important thing to understand because this is a new ballpark here for the Rangers. And with how hot it is in Texas, this place is going to be closed more often than not. So it looks like, based on the early returns here, we're not going to get a lot of carry. And this is a big departure from what we saw with the ballpark in Arlington, Globe Life Park, over the last few years. And furthermore, something else I've talked about in the past, that infield in Texas was like playing on concrete. I mean, that thing was rock hard, being baked in the sun all day. Yeah, they spray the infield down before the game and all that, but that's dry in 36 seconds in Texas. So what we saw was a lot of times we would see ground balls kind of speed up a little bit, take some high hops. You know, the grass wasn't mowed very high there. It was a very fast infield playing surface as well. I would presume things will be different at Globe Life Field here. And maybe I'll run this query in Baseball Savant in advance of Thursday's show. But this may legitimately be a pitcher's park now. Again, it's only three games of data. And the Rockies hitters did strike out 31 times in the three games of this series. But this may be a pitcher's park, and we'll have to get more data. We'll have to dig into some more of the data, but that could be the case here for Texas's home park. One other thing to mention here regarding Colorado, Herman Marquez, John Gray, Kyle Freeland. Freeland was pretty good. Marquez was okay. Gray has had better days. All three of those guys walked three batters in their starts. Now, I, maybe this is just kind of a small sample size thing. Maybe this is just getting amped up for the season and all that. But I mentioned this in the write-up when I took the Rangers uh, in the game with Lance Lynn on the hill. Uh, they didn't come through in that one. Or no, I took them, uh, maybe I took them in the minor game. Uh, either way, I took the Rangers once this weekend. Um, 
I mentioned that the reverse course field effect could come into play for Colorado. They go to summer camp. They're playing at home. They're getting back into the swing of things. They're shaking the rust off in that thin air. Now you go out on the road where everything plays a lot differently. So I wonder if maybe that had kind of an impact a little bit on some of the control metrics for their starting pitchers. Uh, The Rangers didn't take advantage by any means. But I think this is worth watching as Colorado heads out to Oakland to open up a series tomorrow where I think that could have a little bit of an impact out there against a lineup that may be a little bit better than Texas's. Finally, last one here to touch on the Tigers. The first place, Detroit Tigers. Took two out of three from the Cincinnati Reds. And the Reds are going to wish they had this series back. I mean, they lost two games with two dominant pitching efforts. Trevor Bauer, six and two-thirds, struck out 13. Luis Castillo, six innings, struck out 11. Both guys give up one run. The Reds lose both of those games. The Reds' bullpen early returns, not very good at all whatsoever. And they still can't hit. And, and I don't know why this is a thing. They've got some guys that have tools. They've got some guys that have really hit at the minor league level. But for whatever reason, I mean, it doesn't translate to the big league level for them. And this is a good hitter's park, too. So that's a, a lost opportunity there for the Cincinnati Reds, to say the least. And again, their bullpen not looking good at the outset. Very, very concerning to me. So we'll keep a close eye on the Reds here. But, you know, no knock on the Tigers. I mean, kudos to them for, for doing what they need to do in the late innings. But that was the big story to me coming out of this weekend, is that the Reds really squandered a couple of great chances to be 3-0 and or at the very least 2-1 and here. Uh, and it just seems like that's kind of been the Reds' M.O. for a little while now. All right, so we get into the down-the-line segment here. And this is a very important segment. I'm sure most of you are repeat listeners, so a lot of this is going to be old hat for you. But if you are a new listener to the betters box here, I'm going to talk about some very, very important concepts with line moves. How to read games where line moves are going to come in because this is going to happen a lot this season and a lot in future seasons as well. So to take a look at Thursday, the Juan Soto positive COVID test, that drove up the line. The Yankees became a pretty big favorite, won that range-shortened game. Again, this is going to happen this season, and one of the reasons why it's tough to lock in anything a little bit early. Uh, but you know that was the case there on Thursday with Juan Soto's positive test, drove that line up. Game still went off. Game was rain short and the Yankees won. Also, too, keep in mind the different house rules here. Um, you know, some places stipulating that the game has to go eight and a half innings for action, all that kind of thing. Uh, that one obviously did not. Totals and run lines would be refunded. Money lines should be paid out. First five should have been paid out as well since the game got that far. But I saw some sports books didn't pay out the money lines. So make sure you check the house rules and make sure that you're at a place that is, you know, that does have some some responsible house rules. Also on Thursday, Clayton Kershaw got swapped out very late. That was Dustin May who made the start. The line got adjusted and money came in on the Dodgers anyway, and they wound up going out there and winning that game. Friday, Mets and Braves. We saw a lot of Jacob DeGrom money come in against Mike Soroka and the Braves. This is going to be part one of the running theme here for you. Now, DeGrom takes a lot of money because he's really, really good. And in a small favorite role, DeGrom is almost always going to take money. But Mike Soroka, 
268 ERA last year, 345 FIP, 385 XFIP. Lower ERA, excuse me, higher FIP, higher XFIP. Also on Friday, a big move down on Toronto and Tampa Bay. And this was a very interesting line move. So early in the morning and on the overnights, Toronto money came in. Toronto money kept coming in a little bit later in the morning. Then as we went throughout the day, Tampa Bay money came back in and pulled this line up a little bit. Now, this is something we've seen a lot of in the Major League Baseball betting market over the last few years. We've seen a lot of scalping and a lot of arbitrage. So essentially what happens is somebody takes a position on one side of the game. Whether it's a true position or not, they're taking a position on that side of the game. What happens is as that money comes in, the market has to adjust. What I can tell you about the baseball betting market is this. Right now, there's a lot of public action out there, and it probably has some semblance of influence on the market. For the most part, though, the MLB market is very heavily driven by the quant crowd, the modelers, the guys that you know put together an expected final score, know where they want to put the line, and they bet it heavily. Then what happens is, as that line gets bet down or as that line gets bet up, some of the same groups come in on the opposite side to the point where if they can get, you know, plus 130 on a game and then minus 115 on the other side, that's an arbitrage play for them. Because if the dog wins, you get, you know, 100 to win 130. If the favorite wins, it's 115 to win 100. So essentially you break even if the favorite wins, you make money if the underdog wins. So we've seen a lot of that happening in the baseball betting market over the last few years. Now, of course, too, you can run into situations where they'll bet a game, move it towards the target line, then come over the top for a larger sum of money on the other side at a more favorable price. You will see a lot of this if you pay attention to the line histories for a lot of these games. A line will come down typically on an underdog, and the line will come back up once it bottoms out on that favorite. This happens a ton so if you like a team and you think dog money may be coming in wait a little bit scoop up that line when it bottoms out and then you'll get a little bit of closing line value going back the other way if you like an underdog and you think that line's going to move you probably want to bet it pretty quickly if you don't get to it quickly you want to wait it out and see if you can get a better number later in the day this happens a ton in the money line sports It happens a lot in the NHL market as well. You don't get as much buyback, I don't think, in the NHL, but you get a ton of buyback in Major League Baseball. So that was one of the most obvious examples over the weekend, that first Toronto and Tampa Bay game. So go back to your odd screen, take a look at that line movement. You'll see exactly what I'm talking about, where that line came down about as far as 50 cents before going back up a little bit and closing about 25 to 30 cents below where it opened. So that line came down a ton, got bet back up a little bit right before the game went off. A lot of groups with influential money, big, deep bankrolls, they'll do this scalping and arbitraging type of thing over the course of the season. So if you can pick up on it, and you can pick up on a lot of games where this is going to happen, you can find good ways to either play a little arbitrage yourself or at the very least, make sure that you're entering the market at the right time. 
Herman Marquez money came in against Lance Lynn and the Texas Rangers. Herman Marquez last year, 476 ERA, 406 FIP, 354 XFIP. Again, that's your common theme here. I'll recap all of that here in a minute. Saturday, pretty surprising to see money come in on Mike Miner. Money coming in against John Gray. Now, Mike Miner is a guy, low ERA, high FIP, high XFIP from last year, 80% left on base percentage. Would have expected money to come in against Mike Miner. That was not the case there in that game as money actually came in on him for that matchup against the Rockies. We saw some very heavy Dylan Bundy money come in for the Angels against Sean Manaya and the Oakland A's. Manaya, low ERA, higher FIP, higher XFIP. Once again, this is a common theme here. But I also think, too, that people kind of like Dylan Bundy a little bit. Now that he's out of Baltimore, outside of the AL East, I think he may continue to take some money for the Angels here as we go forward. So a heavy move on Max Freed against Steven Matz and the New York Mets. The Braves did have to win that off of the bullpen, but I agreed with that line move. I was on the Braves on Saturday. Max Freed, high ERA, low FIP, low XFIP. That's the theme here once again. Also on Saturday, we saw Luis Castillo take a lot of money against the Detroit Tigers. This will continue happening as well. If you've got an elite starting pitcher going up against a bad team, that line will keep going, and there will not be a whole lot of buyback in those situations. Uh, that was also, I believe, against Yvonne. No, it wasn't against Yvonne Nova, was it? Maybe it was. Yvonne Nova, I think. Uh, Yvonne Nova's not very good. So it was a fade of Nova, a buy of Castillo. Again, we've seen Jacob DeGrom take a ton of money in those types of roles as well against inferior teams. So those are some things to look for. The back and forth, the scalping, the arbitraging. Aces getting money against inferior teams. And then this, Pittsburgh and St. Louis on Sunday. Mitch Keller and Dakota Hudson. Mitch Keller last year, 713 ERA, 319 FIP, 347 X FIP in 48 innings pitched. Dakota Hudson, 335 ERA, 493 FIP, 455 X FIP, in 174 and two-thirds innings. This is almost a foolproof way of reading which way a line is going to move. This is a line that moved down about 50 to 55 cents at some books, and we didn't really get the St. Louis buyback. So you had Mitch Keller with an ERA over seven and a FIP of 319. If you've got a high ERA and a low FIP and a lower XFIP, High ERA, lower FIP, lower XFIP. That pitcher is almost always going to take money. If you have a pitcher like Hudson, 335 ERA, 493 FIP, 455 XFIP. Lower ERA, higher FIP, higher XFIP. Money is almost always going to come in against that guy. When you get the perfect storm where you've got both of those pitchers in a game, that line will move a lot. And that's what happened in that Pirates-Cardinals game there with Keller and Hudson. And by the way, Pittsburgh did win that game. So high ERA, lower FIP, lower XFIP, that line will move on that starting pitcher. Low ERA, higher FIP, higher XFIP, that line will move against that starting pitcher. 
So, again, it's not 100% of the time, but it's a very, very high amount of the time that this happens. So if you're out there trying to read the baseball betting board and you try to get out there in front of line moves, go to fan graphs. Look at the pitcher stats from the previous year or in a regular season you know, from that year. If the ERA is a lot higher than the FIP and the XFIP, you know that money is coming in on that guy. If the ERA is a lot lower than the FIP and the XFIP, money is coming in against that guy. This will happen a lot. So make sure that's something you will keep your focus on here as you're trying to get the best of the number out there in the marketplace. Also on Sunday, you know, it was a big day for underdogs on Saturday. So a lot of underdog money came in on Sunday. And and that's what happens a lot of times. There's a lot of follow the leader in the betting market, a lot of overreaction to recent results. Stay above it. You know, do your handicapping. Stay true to what works for you. Don't overreact to what you see in those small sample sizes. As far as a pick for Monday goes, I got a bunch of them. I got five of them, actually, in my 5,000-word novel over at bangthebook.com looking at today's card. But I will throw one out here for you. I just talked about the Reds and their bullpen issues and how they can't hit, but I do like them today at plus money against the Cubs and John Lester. John Lester's command is in severe decline. I think this could be the year that he bottoms out or sometime in the very near future. If I'm getting plus money to fade John Lester this year, I'm going to take it a lot. For the Reds, you get Wade Miley here. Wade Miley reunited with Derek Johnson, was his pitching coach two years ago with the Milwaukee Brewers. Miley hurt his oblique, missed half the season in that one. But that's when he started making that big shift to throw his cutter a lot more. Was very, very effective. Uh, One of his best years from a walk standpoint. Now he's back with Derek Johnson. I like Miley there. That's why he signed there. Uh, And again, I'm looking to fade John Lester any chance I get. So the Reds at plus money, one of my picks for Monday, but a lot of picks over in that article at bangthebook.com. All right, so we take a look here at the week ahead, assuming we get one. Toronto and Washington, and then Washington and Toronto. So Toronto will be the road team for the first two games, then the home team for the second two games as they wait for that ballpark in Buffalo to be ready to go. A weird spot for the Blue Jays here. Being the home team in the road ballpark, that'll be a little bit awkward. Uh, Steven Strasburg, of course, scratched for Washington in it before his first start. I can't imagine he'll pitch here. They're to be determined for that one. Although Eric Fetty is the guy who stepped in. It'll probably be him on Thursday. The Nationals offense didn't look great in this series against the Yankees. And that's not really a big surprise, missing Juan Soto. And, of course, not having Anthony Rendon anymore. We'll see when Soto's able to come back. But the Nationals offense right now looks like it's just not really in a position to hit its stride. Also, the Blue Jays' bullpen. They weren't bad necessarily against the Rays, but Ken Giles doesn't look right. He's less than 100%. Going to find out a lot about these two teams this week with the four head-to-head matchups there at Nationals Park. The White Sox and the Indians. Dylan Cease and Aaron Savali tonight. I do like the Indians tonight, by the way. Carlos Rodon and Zach Plesac tomorrow. Lucas Giolito, Shane Bieber on Wednesday. As I mentioned, the Indians could not touch Giolito's changeup. So we'll see if they can adjust this season. Uh, The White Sox, they hit a lot of homers against the Twins. Not much else. I wrote a lot about Aaron Savale in my write-up at bangthebook.com today, so I would encourage you to check that out. 
I want to see what Cease and Rodon do here because Reynaldo Lopez was not good. Gio Gonzalez was not good. Giolito was not good. Are they able to show something here in this series against a very talented Indians offense? The Indians did not do anything in the first two games of the series against the Royals. Had a big Sunday showing. These are important starts for Cease and Rodon and important starts for the White Sox as a whole. So I'm curious to see how those go for them. Dodgers and Astros, Walker Buehler and Franbear Valdez in the first one on Tuesday. Dustin May on Wednesday for the Dodgers to be determined for the Astros. Uh, of course, now without Justin Verlander. And, you know, they can still win with their offense, but this pitching staff now looks uh, a little bit iffy here for the Astros, to say the least. So we'll see what they look like here against a very good Dodgers lineup. Then finally, Atlanta and Tampa Bay play at the Trop, and then Atlanta and Tampa Bay play at SunTrust Park for the other two games of that home-and-home four-game series. Mike Fultonevich and Tyler Glass now, Kyle Wright and Yanni Chirinos in the two games in Tampa. Then Charlie Morton, Mike Soroka, Ryan Yarbrough, and Max Freed in the two games in Atlanta. Two good bullpens here, two good offenses, two good pitching matchups. Pretty good litmus test series, I think, for both of these teams. Good litmus test for Fultonevich tonight after not really pitching well on his last tune-up start. Yanni Chirinos, a very good guy in the contact management department. So I'll be curious to see how his start goes on Tuesday. And then the games in Atlanta. You know, Mike Soroka, Max Freed, both very good in their initial outings. Charlie Morton was not. Does he bounce back against a pretty good Atlanta lineup? Well, we'll have to wait and see. Coming up on Tuesday, we'll chat golf, hockey, NASCAR, all that good stuff with Brian Blessing, the host of Sportsbook Radio and Vegas Hockey Outline. And I'll be back once again on Thursday with a new edition of the Betters Box. That'll do it for me. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. And remember that you'll never strike out when you're in the Betters Box.